Anthony Harvey's creative life is rich and varied. Best known for his direction of the Academy Award-winning film The Lion in Winter, he was also Stanley Kubrick's editor on his classics, Lolita and Dr. Strangelove. Anthony is a lifelong jazz lover and admires the emotion and spontaneity of the greatest improvisers. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Anthony talked about his love for jazz legend Ella Fitzgerald. You're a big Ella Fitzgerald fan. Yes, I certainly am. Yeah, when when did you first hear Ella? In England. Yeah? She used to come over, and she did amazing concerts mm-hmm. in London, and you couldn't get in. You had to kind of book up a ticket months ahead. She was just extraordinary. That voice was like an instrument. What year was this that you very first heard her? God, about the 70s, mid-70s. Yeah. yeah. What really speaks to you about Ella? Oh, she's emotionally so enormously moving and that wonderful voice. And just her appearance was so incredible, I thought. Great. How glad the many millions of Timothys and Williams would be to capture me. But you had such persistence, you wore down my resistance, I fell, and it was swell. You're my big and brave and handsome Romeo, how I won you I shall never, never know. It's not that you're attractive, but oh, my heart grew active. When you came into view, I've got a crush on you, sweetie pie, all the day and night time, hear me sigh, I never With so much emotion Could you cool Could you care For a cunning cottage We could share We could share 
Fitzgerald with Nelson Riddle on I've Got a Crush on You. I'm Judy Carmichael and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is director Anthony Harvey. Well, you really like emotion. You relate with that sort of thing. Yes. I think of that with your movies. That yes. It's all about emotion, emotion character, all of that. Yes. And knowing I was going to be talking to you because I thought of that great performances of Catherine Hepburn and Peter O'Toole in Line and Winter and the way they were together was incredible. And yes. it was like two musicians yes. who just play together yes. easily. Was that an instant kind of rapport? Well, they had extraordinary chemistry. They really had known each other briefly. Kate had found Peter in a play called Long and the Short and the Tall. And she went to David Lean and said, you've got to, this is your Lawrence of Arabia. So by the time we stopped this film, they kind of knew each other. But they had a wonderful love-hate relationship. <laughs> Kate called Peter uh, Pig, and she called him Nags. <laughs> and the whole thing was hilarious. It was the best time I've ever had making it really? in France, yes. And why was that? In what, just... I just think the, the script was marvelous. The, 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 the act, and Hepburn I'd never met. This was my first major film. I'd made a small film of Leroy Jones is Dutchman and here was these it was rather knee trembling to begin with I, I remember going to see Hepburn in London and gave her some roses and she threw them on the ground and said these are terrible looking things and she said don't try and be friends with me you're a director and I'm an actress and if it happens later on great but how did, did you respond? I just speechless but then we everything I did seemed to be wrong until about a week into the shooting and we had a huge disagreement over a scene, and I kind of stuck to my guns. It was that marvelous scene in the mirror. And she said, well, I'm certainly not going to do it that way. And I said, well, it really worked. She said, I'm, I'm certainly cannot. I, I'll compromise. I said, that won't work. So I hung on for a few days, shot some other scenes. Finally, Kate did it, and she, was, and she let her hair down and was terribly emotional. And she put a funny piece of Kleenex under my door at three o'clock in the morning and said, I hope the stars and the moon and the sun will be with you. Love, Kate. And we became rather good friends. Oh, how wonderful. I worked wonderful. with her a lot after that. Well, she trusted you after that, knowing yeah. that you'd made the right Challenge. decision. Needed to have a bloody great row. That's interesting. And years later, I worked with Betty Davis, same thing. She needed to have a row. And why is that? Don't know. But they really needed... To push and push you. and push test, to test. test yes. And how old were you? I was 32. I and how old was she? 60-something, early wow. 60s. Wow. Were you terribly intimidated? I remember being... I mean, I'd spent many, many years as an editor, so I was kind of... Uh, I was I was sort of... But but no, I was also rather angry, mm. I remember, because I admired her so much, and suddenly this is very difficult... 
impossible woman who, as the years went by, I thought was quite extraordinary. Mm. And it, and she it, her difficult parts was Mar were extraordinary. Didn't matter a bit. She was had a, such a wonderful sense of humor, mm. particularly about herself. Mm. Well, and, that's important. And she was a huge influence on my life and um, and a wonderful friend. And in that that scene, you really wanted her to play it in a vulnerable way yes. rather than in a strong way. Oh, no, way. no. She said, I'm Eleanor Aquitaine. I'm going to sit straight up and I'm not playing it any other way. And but I you said, knew it had to be that yeah. way. But it was the only time in the film where she's alone mm. and there's a real chance to be vulnerable. And That's very so, hard to do. I think of that with musicians, too, and especially in jazz where you're improvising and you're really exposing yourself because it's nobody else's notes. It's your notes. Yes. And a lot of people, more people can be technically proficient, yes. but it takes the very rare musician that can expose themselves emotionally. And you create that environment for your actors to make them feel safe enough. And that's what I find fascinating, that you have a 32-year-old director with this woman who already yes. is very, very famous yeah. and accomplished, and you're the one making her comfortable. How do yeah. you do that? That's well, interesting. Well, I think the most important thing for act, and I love actors. I started one as my as I was one myself for a short period. But I think the thing that is important with actors is not only trust you, but trust themselves. Mm. And they need enormous affection and love, and they're like naughty kids at times. And uh, <sighs> the marvelous thing about that film is that. Um, those two, O'Toole, I hadn't known either, really. But they both kind of, when when Kate said, well, I'm not going to do it this way, Peter would say, well, just do it. Listen to Tony. And it, same thing. The other, and it kind of worked for me in a wonderful kind of way. But the, what, the extraordinary thing was by the end of that film, Tony Hopkins was in the film. It's his first movie. That it was such a group of great people. We We spent hours kind of going around the countryside and finding all kinds of, in the, in the weekends, that it was like being on vacation. My mm. whole crew sat under bushes with bottles of wine. And John Barry wrote this wonderful score. Mm. And he started out as he a jazz musician. As, yes, a John Barry, I can't remember. I met him when I was an editor. and Was, uh, he, was he performing as a jazz musician then? Yes, for a short period. In London, mm -hmm. then he wrote these very early. He wrote all the James Bond films mm -hmm. and some stuff with Brian Forbes. And I met him when I was cutting a film called The L Shaped Room. And I came to do this very small film called Dutchman, which we shot for twenty thousand mm. dollars, and it won Golden Lion and Venice for Shirley Knight. And John said, um, "I'll do it for nothing." Really? And he just got an old piano and he put some chains on the piano to give a feeling of New York, kind of dark almost kind of jazz score, and he just sat, uh, rather like Nina Rota did years mm -hmm. later, he sat under the screen and sort of plonked away on this piano, and it was While brilliant. he was watching the film. Yes, yes. And that's how he wrote he it. Didn't, yes, exactly. Well, that's a very jazz yes. experience. Yes. And I would think that his jazz background made that possible, yes. that he oh, was absolutely. able to do that and think in that way. And those James Bond scores, I mean, they're jazzy. That yes. was the oh, whole absolutely. thing about Girl the James. Finger. The man with the Midas touch 
cold finger Beckons you to enter his web of sin Kiss of death from Mr. Goldfinger. Pretty girl, beware of this heart of gold. This heart is cold. Golden words he will pour in your ear, but his lies can't disguise what you feel. of death from Mr. Goldfinger Pretty girl Beware of this heart of gold This heart is cold He loves only gold Only gold He John Barry's composition, Goldfinger, from his soundtrack for the James Bond movie of the same name. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking with director Anthony Harvey about collaborating with John Barry and John's process for writing a film score. One comes in and you sit through reel after reel after reel, and we both come to an agreement where we think the music should be. In this case, though... He was trying to find a, a wonderful kind of violent, upsetting noise for New York City. And, mm. that, and he just put these chains on these two pianos and plonked away. It's actually he records that score from time to time on his, you know, when he reissues things. You sat there with him as he yes. was watching the film yes. and doing it. And you'd say, yes, yes, no, that kind of thing. Yes. But how is the score normally done? It's not done that oh, way. Oh, normally you meet. This is a terrible thing about film composers. They're brought in almost the last when you get a fine cut, and there's generally because the production wants to close, get going. They're generally given something like three weeks to write an entire score, and I did about six movies with John Barry. And the thing about him, that if something didn't quite work during the music session, he would he would just change it to something quite wonderful. The thing about uh, you were asking me how you do it. You sit there, reel by reel, with a composer, make notes where you think the music should be. Composer goes away for three weeks, comes back. You all go to a music to a studio, and sit there. And you, you're really most times stuck with whatever it is he's written. Really, yeah. you you can't say that doesn't work. Let's change it. Yes, you it. can. But the thing about John Barry is that he was able to do these things, and he would call me up and say, "Come run, I've I've got this theme," and he'd play it on a piano. But I trusted him because his music I, it was extraordinary. On this particular film, I 
I love to write, put music into soundtracks uh, in the cutting copy because I think it's very helpful. And um, You I, put it in yourself? Yes. Mm-hmm. Just, Just music uh, that you yes. choose? Because well, there are long passages without dialogue and it gives it a wonderful emotional lift, scenes that need something. And um, in this particular film, I, I, Benjamin Britten wrote these extraordinary preludes uh, Peter Grimes, um, not preludes, they were sort of passages about the ocean and about, and it had such an emotional feeling, his music. So I put all those in the cutting hobby, and John saw it, and I think he kind of took off, and he got an Oscar for that film. And that, I think, in a way, I felt thrilled because here was Dutchman, which he did for absolutely no money, having done all the James Bond films. And a year later, he got an Oscar for Lion and Winter. Mm. Thrilling. And you inspired him by the music that I you hope. had put in I your th- cutting copy, I think which is so. interesting. I normally cut the music out because I think it's rather inhibiting mm. for a composer. You talked about editing, and I know that you were doing that for Kubrick. Stanley yes, Kubrick. before that, actually, I started on a film called Private's Progress with two brothers, Roy and John Bolting, and I was about 21, and I was slaving away in the cutting rooms, joining film with cement. And Roy used to come in and say, God, you're not having a very good time. Come into the theater and run, see the movies, you know. But normally I was in a little tiny stone room at Shepparton Studios with a brush. And um, a year later, he made a marvelous comedy called Private's Progress with Dickie Attenborough. And he said, why don't you have a go at it? And here was I with a major movie. And the next one was I'm All Right, Jack, with Peter Sellers. And I spent years with them. And, and how, how did you learn how to do editing? Was this something... I just learned... Roy gave me these marvelous chances. Here was I. I had cut some rather small kind of commercials, and uh, with not much. And he trusted me. And, in fact, they're doing a big tribute to him in London next month. Oh, how wonderful. And I've just written a piece because he, they made extraordinary films like... Uh, Brighton Rock and Thunder Rock and he and his brother John, they were twins uh, and they had a whole series of really great movies. So that was a great break and then I did a film with Marty Reard of The Spy Came From The Cold and I wrote to Stanley Kubrick who was coming to London to do Lolita Mm. and asked him if he'd give me a job. You did? And he gave me a job after interviewing me for weeks. He did. Yes. And what? And just talking about films and what your vision uh, yes, was. Yes, I've been and... to see Pearls of Glory, and I remember coming out of my palms were absolutely sweating, as it was such an extraordinary film. And he wanted to make quite sure I was going to be totally devoted to his work, which mm. I was. And I spent the next eight years with him. And, and he's really one of those that wants you with him every minute. Yeah. From everything I've ever read about him. Yes. That I mean, you. And we used much... to drive backwards and forwards. And we went on holidays. We went to Paris for a holiday. Um, I remember him, I had a marvelous little hotel in the left bank called the Angleterre, and he was staying in the Maurice, a sort of grand, grand hotel. And he said, can I see where you're living? And he came to the hotel and he said, aren't I paying you enough? <laughs> he climbed the stairs to my room up in the, in the Rue Jacob. The lovely guy. I did Strange Love also. I know, and I, I'm fascinated because I think I about Peter Sellers, what is it like editing Peter Sellers? Because there's somebody that I see as, and maybe I'm wrong, he seems very improvisational, like he might be, but he would go off on on a rap or something. So how does one approach that? I actually worked on eight movies. I did uh, a film called The Millionaires with Sophia Loren as a cutter, and then I'm All Right Jack, which was brilliant, and then 
uh, The Man in the Cocked Hat, Lolita, Strangelove, and I can't remember. Yes, it absolutely just came out of all the years of being a, you know, a wonderful comedian with the goons in mm, London. Mm. But he'd, it seems like it'd be fascinating because you'd have such a embarrassment of riches, I'm sure, you oh, know, yes, with the with, different things and, and choosing that and also... Well, strange love when he, you know, with the Fuhrer thing, when he puts his hand to his throat, says, Heil Hitler, and the whole extraordinary stuff he had. And uh, he had a script, of course, but like in films, improvisation, you have to use very sparingly because it, it, it can... Ruin the whole thing. Exactly. It's got to sound as though it was part of the script. Right, right. And the pacing, and those are all the things that you're thinking about. As and you're he going knew always with... every line. And I remember that he had a lot of scenes with Shirley Winters on Lolita. And Shirley Winters, God bless her, never learned her lines. <laughs> so by take, take one and two, Peter was brilliant. By take 48, when Kubrick would sometimes go up to 48, uh, Shirley had learned the part, and he completely could forgot everything. Oh. So I had to cut take one with take 38 or take 40. And that's very hard. I'm thinking as a director, going back to that, that you're dealing with people that, like a Peter Sellers and a Shelley Winters, again, I'm thinking about musicians I know that, that I know for myself, I'm very much a first take kind of girl. I come in with a lot of energy. I want to just do it. And in recording sessions, if I don't have it by the second take, I usually play a different tune because right. I can't stand to keep playing the same tune over because I just... Right. I go brain dead. Or someone like Shelley Winters. I mean, how do you direct two people like that and get them to be working yeah. in harmony? That has to be very difficult. Well, he Kubrick had a lot of time and he and and, and he I remember he got very irritated by all this. Um but editing the thing together was difficult because he had to get your scissors in between the sentences to get a bit right. of Peter and a bit of Shelley. So that's really what you did. You put the performances yeah, together because yeah. the two of them never did have a performance that worked Sometimes, together. Sometimes, not much. And just going back to uh, Hepburn about musical, uh, your voice being an instrument, mm. when you think Ellen of Aquitaine is so, so an American actress playing Ellen of Aquitaine, right. and when she played that, you didn't think of any nationality, right. that she was English-American or anything. She was that extraordinary voice... Somehow it worked. Right. I, was I think, think it's star quality is what mm, it is. Mm. You can surmount that. Yeah, I wondered about that because I was thinking about that with her no. accent. And if you had you thought about trying to have her speak with more of no, a British... No, no, no. You never, never works. It never works. When Eng American actors do English plays in New York and be English... I think it ruins everything. Well, they do it all the time. I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow's done a couple. There's yes. That's what they're doing all the time. Do you think they don't she, work? Sometimes. Peter Sellers was the only actor I knew who could do a brilliant American actor, and you would never, never, and Strangelove, he played the president. Right. You would never for a moment realize that he was English. He was a genius at sound, at getting mm. something. Very but, few. But you usually don't. Like it when no. an American tries no, to do the British the accent, either. I think it gets in the way. Mm. Much better to just do it. That's interesting. Well, Sean Connery never changes his accent no. in every movie, no. whether he's playing a Russian, whether no. <laughs> it's always. The I same think thing. it's a game with like Betty Davis. It's, it's a star quality. You can, if you have that amazing whatever it is, you can do anything. Mm. Well, and she had a very distinctive way of talking, very in her rhythm, Betty Davis, yes. as yes. well as Catherine Hepburn and. 
You worked with a with one of my very favorites, Nino Rota. Speaking yes, of jazz, oh yeah. Well, I admired him so much. All those extraordinary Fellini films. And we were in Rome. I was making a film with Peter Finch and Lee Ullman, and we were in Rome. And I heard that he was down the road doing some improvisation uh, with a wonderful Italian director called Lina Wurtmuller. So I crashed into this place and introduced myself and told them we were making a film and said, "If you would you ever think of coming to London and doing the music? And he said, absolutely. Wrote down his address. He lived in Bari in the south of Italy. An enchanting little guy he was. Marvellous. And he came to London and he wrote the score. It was called The Abdication. And he was so thrilled to be conducting the London Philharmonic that it ended up, didn't sound like Nina Retro anymore. <laughs> that extraordinary sound that he had on all those Fellini films. And in the beginning, he, as I think I said earlier, we would run the film and he'd sit at the piano in a, in a room with the film up on the, the same screen. Same way John Berry did. Yeah, and he just looked up at the screen and then wrote the themes. It was magical. Is that it was how magical did? when he played it on the piano. Mm. When it came up on a great big London Philharmonic thing, it, it lost its. It lost all his wonderful, you know, wonderful quality that he had. Is that how he composed when he worked with Fellini? The same way yeah, he I would watched the film so. and do it that like way? That, yeah. So that was just his style. Yeah. from Fellini's The Knights of Kiberia by Nino Rota. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is film director Anthony Harvey. Do you have any favorite films about jazz? Well, I think one of the great films, I've seen it three or four times, is called Around Midnight. Mm. Extraordinary, very moving and terribly upsetting and and Haunting, absolutely great movie. Have you seen it? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. It took a foreign director yes. to yes. make a movie about well, jazz. About, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. 
The Peacocks, from the soundtrack of the film Round Midnight. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is produced in association with Steinway & Sons and KRVS-FM Lafayette, Louisiana. Thanks also to Carol Phillips and Steve Plotnicki. For a discography of the music played on our show and a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com. My guest is film director Anthony Harvey. One of the great jazz scores, I think, was um, A Sweet Smell of Success, mm. Shelley Mann. The Mad Modern Jazz Quartet was a brilliant score. Mm. Chico you know Hamilton. It? Chico Hamilton. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Chico Hamilton, wonderful, wonderful. A lot of people now are taking records more instead of having the films scored. Yes. And why do they do that? Do, to set a mood that they think... Because I think jazz is so emotional. It can be so emotional, and particularly The Sweet Smell of Success, which was a very dark, brilliant film, I think, and... Uh, that it underscored, you know, the, the sort of violence of, mm-hmm. of those two characters mm-hmm. in New York City, mm-hmm. and it was frightening and brilliant. Couldn't have been. It was. It was. It added to the film enormously. Mm-hmm. They've done that a lot more. I'm always thrilled because it's introducing in new audiences yes. to these tunes. Because yes. I mean, Woody Allen's done that a lot, and yes. but. Uh, other people doing it, and every time they'll have an old version of something, I think, ah, because this is going to get seen by by 20-year-olds who might not even know that this exists or something like that.
to be you. It had to be you. I wandered around and finally found the somebody who could make me be true, could make me be blue, or even be glad just to be sad, thinking of you. Some others I've seen might never be mean, might never be cross or try to be boss, but they wouldn't do for nobody else. Gave me a thrill with all your faults. I love you still. It had to be you, wonderful you. It had to be you. this question I know that you also have talked about that there's too many people now in the process and that movies can go on forever and I always think of that keeping that emotion alive again because I'm a jazz musician I think I'm thinking of that of what it's like playing with people and as we talked about Catherine Hepburn and Peter O'Toole their energy together how your whole cast hung out together, felt these things. Mm. That seems like that energy and interaction would work better over a shorter period of time because you have a flow that keeps going to where if you're working for two years, that would be very hard to sustain that kind of feeling. Or am I wrong about this? No, I know. Drool and Hepburn, you see, were brilliant in early takes. And and if you go on, you lose. I think all the early stuff has always worked. George C. Scott, I did a film with in New York. First take, brilliant. And he agreed. And he didn't... If you asked to do three or four, he got rather irritated, and I understood that. I didn't need any more because it was amazing. He couldn't have improved on it. Mm. And films, uh, A Dutchman, that little film I made for $20,000, and it won, uh, as I said, in Venice, which was extraordinary, above Belle de Jour with Catherine Deneuve. Mm. Shirley Knight got the Golden Lion Award. And it, and it took off, and that's what Pedro O'Toole saw when he gave me a job on Lion and Winter. Um, that took a week. Lion and Winter was only 12 weeks. I have worked on a film that went on for months and months and months. It was called Players. It was with Ali McGraw. And we were everywhere. We were in New York and we were in London and south of France and 
it, it just went on and were eight or nine writers. It made no sense. It just it just didn't work. And it, the the first cut ran eight hours, and I'd broken my leg by this time. I think I <laughs> I was shipped off to a hospital, and I remember going to the cutting rooms in an ambulance. But <laughs> oh, it was no. it was it was too much, too much. It didn't work. Well, that's what I'm thinking, because I think that in any creative process, and it's just very obvious in jazz, because you have a trio, and it's just those three people. It's one mm. of the things that appealed to me about jazz, is I thought, there's nobody Absolutely, else. It's yes. me and the piano. But you do get to dig down into yourself, but then connect with that other person. It's like, okay, now we're going. It's You're dancing together, yes. and you keep going. Oh, and otherwise, you're thinking about it too much. I would think... Too much money now, and too long. Everything's too long. The thing that's brilliant about those early films, they never ran more than an hour and a half, those films I grew up with in England, and now everything's three hours, and books are too long. Mm-hmm. Everything's too long. No, I agree. And Every concert I go to, I think, is too long. Yes. I'm always Leave kidding. the audience wanting more. Want, everyone's forgotten that. Forgotten that. I think it's like yeah. they just don't know because I feel the same way too, and they think that attention spans have gotten shorter, but I think it's that a lot of things have just gotten too long. I agree. And it's it, the same thing if rehearsing. You can go on and on and on and just dig the thing into the ground. The first instincts of an actor is generally quite marvelous, and the only time as a director one needs to say anything, and that one says very little, I do it mostly by look on a face, is that is is just if it's way off beam, then you just guide somebody back. Mm. But I think that actors have wonderful instincts. And by saying very little, you can get even... I think I'm now sounding uh, sounding muddled. Um, it's like editing is a terribly difficult thing to talk about because you sound pretentious. Because editing is such a personal thing. Mm. But it's that extra few frames in a close-up. Mm. And some, some actress says, I love you. Mm-hmm. And you hold it for a little longer. And it's devastating. If you put your scissors in too early. Mm. But it's very difficult... To, to talk about cutting. You were asking me about that, and I was thinking last night, and it was a book about cutting. Um, it was Carol Rice, who was a brilliant director. It was a long book about editing. It made no sense whatsoever <laughs> of what he was talking about, and it's considered a brilliant book. Mm. I don't think... I think everything is so different. Every editor is different, every actor, every line, and there's no rules. Mm. And if you break them, it's all the better anyway. Well, and it's being in touch, again, I think, with the emotion of it. Because as you were describing that, and I can see you gesticulating here while on radio, and so other people can't see you, but the way you put your hand out there and had it sort of focus in like a camera would on an act, as you were describing the actor's face, and you keep it there just a moment longer, that's very much for me playing the piano, especially... I'll notice it on long, on slower tunes because as I become more confident and more comfortable with my emotions and exposing right. them, I'll let that note breathe just a little longer and I'm not so anxious to go on to the next thing. Yeah. And that's what it sounds like it is with editing that you start getting into a rhythm that it isn't intellectual. You're just feeling, yeah. let that frame last a little longer, that focus. I think it seems what's very happened, similar. it's television. MTV, all those quick, quick cut, everything has to be fast, instant gratification, mm. so that nothing is allowed to... It's so lovely to go to a film occasionally and just 
just let it play and not have everything cut, 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 cut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, with you, with, with playing. So. Mm-hmm. To let it be there. It's, it's an interesting thing to think, too, about working with actors because I look at that as a very collaborative kind of thing. And again, thinking about it, playing with other musicians, are, are you a director that, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking it must be true, because you do love actors. Yes, I do. I think a lot of directors probably don't love no, actors. I don't think so. And that makes the difference. Do you want lots of feedback from your actors in terms of a character and seeing that if you've cast the right person for that role... Casting is everything. They would start I having think. more and more insight into that character that I would think they'd be able to give you because they're living it. Is that not true? Yes. I think casting is terribly important. Um, and the other thing, of course, is terribly important is a script. You can have the best actors in the world, the most wonderful director. If you don't have a script, forget it. Nothing, <laughs> nothing happens. Mm. No, I think actors need enormous amount of love, and they will give you back. Mm. If there's a whole feeling of mistrust on the set where everything is, and it's happened a few times, and it's a nightmare. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work for anyone. Mm-hmm. And the actors don't give anything because they're so nervous. Mm. The thing is to have a wonderful feeling on the set mm. and then everybody blossoms and thrilling. It's a thrilling business when it's like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would think, again, the thing of having fewer writers, like you're saying, if you have your yeah. writer, you know what the what the script is. Yes, one, cap, one director, mm-hmm. one writer... Mm-hmm. You have to be the captain of the ship. You can't have 300 other ideas, otherwise why bother? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that film, Players, there were about eight writers, <laughs> and they were, all, they were all rather good writers, and, none of it, and Bob Town, who wrote Chinatown, but nothing gelled because it was different ideas. Nonsense, absolute nonsense. Uh, waste of time and waste of well, money. Well, it is, and you can't have that many leaders. I remember I was on a tour once with my trio, and it was a State Department tour, and the people in charge kept asking every musician separately what we wanted to do, where we wanted to go, instead of coming to me as the leader. And everything was falling apart. And finally, I just said, jazz is not a democracy. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that the guys would always quote that because it was so funny. It was, you need one voice here, one captain of your ship, as Absolutely. you say. Absolutely. And the, now the film industry is just too many cooks, too many agents, too many lawyers. Um, every actor now has to have a manager. Makes no sense at all. But there are, there are people that respond. I always find it interesting that when the film, the rare film comes out that's about character and yeah. emotion and it's a smaller film and everyone talks about that it had a smaller budget or whatever, yes. people love it. It no. still seems like that. Oh, they do. The Postman, that marvelous film, The Postman, mm. that Italian film, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. The, recently that wonderful Indian movie was so monsoon wedding, brilliant, mm. and it was about had the breath of life. Mm-hmm. All these other films now are so huge and overwritten and overproduced, and they and they have no emotion at all. They're cold. Mm-hmm. It's lovely when you come a monsoon wedding. You come out of the cinema dancing down the aisle, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it had wonderful music in it. And people still respond to that. I think oh, that's absolutely. Because it is. It's, it's, it's human scale. Absolutely. It's human like, scale. You know, instead of a super highway, you're walking down a little right. street in Rome. 
this moment on You for me, dear Only two for tea, dear From this moment on From this happy day No more blue songs Roy Belting, who was a fine director, used to go to New York quite a lot, he'd bring back these records of Mabel Mercer, who had a wonderful kind of jazz voice, and she sat every night in a nightclub, and Bricktop, who was in Paris, and they... Frank Sinatra said he learned everything from the timing of Mabel Mercer. Extraordinary timing, wonderful uh, regard for lyrics so that people like Cole Porter and Gershwin really had this marvellous, marvellous voice and these wonderful, not a marvellous voice really, but a wonderful expressive, Mm. almost like an instrument, and wonderful regard for lyrics. You and I, babe Kind of skin that I love to touch And you've got the arms that can hold me tight You've got those lovely lips just to kiss me goodnight From this moment on You I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm always fascinated by that when I'll hear someone that sings a tune I've heard a million times, and all of a sudden I hear the lyrics and I realize I've never listened to them before. They're really listening and really having you hear what these lyrics are about. All those records that uh, Ella Fitzgerald did of Rogers and Hart and Gershwin, that series, remember, where Mm -hmm. she did everything. Her lyrics were so marvelous. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and she always sounds so joyous that yeah. she's so happy that she sings as she does. Yeah. She's as happy as we are yeah. that In she's London, got that great voice. People would go for, would queue up for hours when she came over. Mm-hmm. There's a cheerful little earful Gosh, I miss it, something fearful And this cheerful little earful Is the well-known I love you Stocks can go down, business slow down But the milk and honey flow down With a cheerful little earful Of the well-known I love you in every place it's a sad phrase What the public get phrase But as a pet phrase It'll do, do, do Poop-a-roo it Soft and cue it Make me happy You can do it With a cheerful little earful Of the well-known I love you Well, I think you're terribly jazz-inspired, Tony. Thank you very much for being Thank here. Thank you. This has been great I fun. I look forward to hearing your work. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to film director Anthony Harvey. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My engineer is Carl Fontenot, who mixed the program at KRVS-FM, Lafayette, Louisiana. Additional technical support is provided by Bob Anderson at WLIU-FM, Southampton, New York. The closing theme music is from my CD, Trio. I'm on piano with Mike Cashem on sax and Chris Flory on guitar. Thanks to Carol Phillips, Steve Plotnicki, and Tom Rickenback. Find out more about our program on our website, jazzinspired.com. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is produced in association with Steinway & Sons. This year we're recording Jazz Inspired live on stage at the Tanglewood Jazz Festival in Lenox, Massachusetts, Labor Day weekend. So watch for that upcoming broadcast, or if you'd like to come with us to Tanglewood, check out judycarmichael.com for more information.